Hey guys, quick update from the podcast. Our next audio documentary series is going live Monday, August 30th. It's called Slaying Satyev. It's a story about the biggest upset in wrestling history. We put a ton of time into these audio documentaries. Our last one was The Smiths. Slaying Satyev is coming August 30th. It would mean the world to us if you checked out all four episodes on Monday, August 30th, right here on this platform. They announced it three hours before, and they showed it. The, the SUV is for the champ, Harley Davidson's for the second, and they had a rug and a camcorder and something else for third. And once I made the finals at 10 a.m., between 10 to 6, I had over 90 people wanted to buy my Harley Davidson. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Our guest today is a Greco-Roman legend, Iranian-born Makafari, four-time world medalist. He got second in 91, 30-95, took home a silver at the 96 games in Atlanta, and then second in 98. This podcast is full of stories from Matt's travels abroad, training with the great Karelin, and an epic trip to Siberia in 1995 that I'm not even going to spoil anything that happens in this story. It's mind-blowing. Check it out for yourself, folks. I hope you enjoy this episode. Fan of the Week goes to David Bartlett Bates. David said that Wrestling Changed My Life is one of the best podcasts on the internet. Thank you, David. You're too kind with your words, and we greatly appreciate it. As always, folks, Wrestling Changed My Life is proudly presented by Spartan Combat. Spartan Combat is now accepting requests for custom team orders for this upcoming season. Go to SpartanCombat.com for all your custom team apparel needs. And that's it, folks. Let's get to the interview with the great Matt Gafari. So, Matt, you were initially born in Iran. Is that right? Correct. What was childhood like in Iran? Do you have any memories of growing up there? Yeah, wrestling was the number one sport. I had two little brother and one baby brother, but it was always two against me, and we broke a lot of furniture. We'd just be brawling and trying to wrestle. 
you know, you got baseball and football on TV here. Over there, wrestling's on TV every night and different clubs. There's no high school or college. So basically, it's neighborhoods versus neighborhoods, cities versus cities. So is the club European style or Asian style is clubs. So. And were your parents athletes? Uh, no, my dad always played basketball. We had a basketball hoop. And so we, we have recreational, not professional, no. And so you guys got into wrestling. And when did you start getting serious with it? I think my first year when I hurt my knee, I had knee surgery. I kind of had something to prove to come back uh, in high school. Very late bloomer. I didn't pick up, you know, I wrestled 11th grade my first year, novice tournament, and I won it. And the only reason I won it, because the guy hit me in the, my nose, I stopped bleeding. They said, I just hold him down. I didn't even know, use a move. I just sat on his chest and pushed him, his neck down. But, uh, so you didn't you know, wrestle competitively or organized wrestling in Iran when you were a kid? No. Interesting. No, I wrestled in Pramus High School my first year. My photography teacher, black and white photography, was a wrestling coach. He told me he would give me an A if I come out for wrestling. <laughs> that is awesome. How did I want to talk? Is that Coach Savage? Yeah, Bill Savage. Yeah. Bill Savage. We're going to get to him. I have to know, though, how did you end up in New Jersey? Um, did you leave because of the revolution or what happened? Well, my grandfather was visionary. I have two. You know, as Olympians, we never get offered to write a whole book, but like 20 of us got together and wrote a book. And there's another book about, you know, Olympic inspiration, but I would say my grandfather was my hero. And uh, he can, he had seven sons. My father had four sons. And three years before revolution, 75, he knew that he had to get the boys out of the country or they get caught in politics and war. And uh, he bought a duplex and him and a couple of my uncles lived on one side and me and my, my dad and my family lived on one side. But uh, I, I- In New uh, Jersey? Yeah, I mean, he bought a house in Pramus, New Jersey. I didn't know. He could have bought a house in Canada and I'd be a Canadian wrestler. <laughs> I didn't know, you know? So did your parents come with you when you went to the US or they stay in Iran? No, they came with me. Everybody migrated. And so he had the foresight to know that there was about to be big problems. Uh, a few well, years you know, ago. the politics, the young kids get drafted for military, young kids get drafted for picking sides. And, you know, at uh, 14, 15 years old, 10th grader, that's when uh, things go, you know, you get to the wrong side or the right side. Depends. Yeah. So interesting that you grew up in this in this country where wrestling is a religion and you found it in uh, in New Jersey, uh, your junior year in high school. So once you got to Jersey, what was it like kind of adapting to American culture and learning the language? Uh, I had fun with it. I didn't at, at the beginning because you don't have confidence. You don't talk much, but, you know, I smiled a lot because in my homeroom we had girls. I came from an all-boys school, never had girls in a class, and that was very unique. <laughs> um, you know, English as a second language was like two of my classes. You know, I was in advanced algebra, at calculus, advanced physics, 
but I couldn't do American history or psychology because of the language barrier. So they had us in, you know, we had me and my brother in uh, English as a second language, just trying to learn the basic, uh, I want to say scales to be able to read um, things like that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you had to work for it. You couldn't wait for it. That was the motto. And this was your, this is your art teacher. We're talking about the same person here, right? Yeah. Yeah. My wrestling coach. Wow. And I had read that you almost missed high school graduation because you were flying back from a tournament. What's the story behind that situation? Yeah. I wrestled at the AAU nationals in Chicago. I took my graduation present as a airline ticket to go and wrestle and uh, Greco and freestyle and junior Olympics, AAU was really exciting to me. And um, and as soon as the medal round ceremony was over, I had to get on the cab and get to airport. And and I landed an hour before graduation. And I, you know, my family was mad. I don't have any pictures because I walked with my caps and gowns from the airport right to marching in and. And then giving it all back to them. So I get the deposit and <laughs> that was it. Where did you go at that point in your life? Did you go to college or did you start training freestyle and Greco full time? No, I wrestled for, for Fairleigh Dickinson University right after high school. And then how did you, I guess, when was the first time you wrestled Bruce Bumgartner? I wrestled Bruce in high school. I, I said, you know, uh, Bruce was 20 minutes away from Paramus and got, you know, that was uh, my first Corella. You know, at the high school, he was awesome. At college, he was awesome. You know, and after college, he was just a god. So just, you know, he kept keeping me uh, grounded and humble. So he, I didn't even put that together that you, you guys were that close in high school. Yeah, at the 84 Olympic training camp I was an alternate it was me and Bruce and Dan game Dan Gable got up and says you see these two guys these are the only one in this whole gym that never won state which it was embarrassing but me and Bruce looked at each other I says yeah but our state was just one big tournament it wasn't division one two three four you know Ohio has four state champions at heavyweight New Jersey was just like Olympics everybody wrestled was one champion so so were you and Bruce ever in the bracket together at state? No, no just in the tournaments, like, like Christmas tournament, things like that. Got it. Bruce was uh, many years ahead of me. Okay. I mean, what? head and shoulder talent-wise. I was a... Uh... What memories do you have of that training camp with Gable and, and Bumgartner in 84 there? I mean, that's a very funny story to begin with. Just because I graduated from Cleveland State and basically same thing, didn't stick around for graduation, drove to Grand Valley College Olympic trials and placed uh, as an alternate, like second alternate, then drove back to Cleveland, put everything in the U-Haul, drove back to New Jersey and uh, got a call from Dan Gable that, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm college graduated. I'm trying to decide, go to work or go for my master's. 
He's like, no, no, I'm talking about what are you doing this summer? I'm like, just got home, unpack, relax, get a job. I don't know. He's like, well, uh, the number one alternate, Holcomb, got hurt. And there's no one wants to wrestle Bruce and you have good matches with him. You are the next up in line to fly out to Olympic camp in Big Bear Lake and train with Bruce. And if Bruce goes down, you're going to represent U.S. in Olympics, which was a, a carrot for me to go and play hard and wrestle hard. And it was good. I went to Los Angeles with credentials as an alternate. The guys who won second and third are beat before from Canada. You know, Russia wasn't there, so there wasn't the right. Easter Bloc country. But I said, you know, I would have won the Olympic medal if I was just make the team. So I got the five ring fever and uh, decided to dedicate my life. I could say five ring that, fever. Yeah, I mean, before that wrestling was just a sport. I did it, you know, as a scholarship and I did it because it was just like fun. I think in Los Angeles, uh, training and running with Bruce every day and noticing you know how dan gable ran and how you know it doesn't matter if everybody practices two hours it's how intense you practice and how close to competition it is so yeah i got the going to olympics in 84 i knew i was going to win a medal i just you know keep waiting for bruce to retire after 88 and keep saying to me that you know this is his last year but then i switched to greco because i knew he's going to wrestle a couple more olympics so it was a wow. good decision. What a that's crazy. So mm -hmm. after that Olympics, where did you train at for like the next decade or so? Did you have a job or were you coaching it? So as soon as soon as uh, uh, so all the alternates, like number two guys, I don't know you coach Bill Wick was Dan Gable's coach. Yeah, they didn't want the Olympians get beat up. So they would take all the alternates and they make us run and get tired before practice, you know? So all the alternates, like Dan Severin was an alternate for 220. And Bill Shear and Jim Shear, all of us, like we always talk, like what's the next four years going to look like? And it was a dream of mine. I was wrestling for New York Athletic Club at the time because I was from New Jersey, Cleveland State. I went to the Olympic trials as a New York Athletic Club athlete so at the olympic camp i switched to sunkis and dan severin recruited me you know i looked at schultz i looked at shears and i'm like oh everybody's sunkis you know my bruce is new york athletic club i just want to get away from him you know, go <laughs> opposite. so i moved to arizona i coached at arizona state for 10 years with bobby yeah and leroy i was on the staff with bobby and leroy you know. And then my younger brother came in and wrestled. And then when they put the weight class, he was a heavyweight. He was a true heavyweight at 320. So when they put the weight class, he went and played football. But uh, yeah, Arizona became my second home. Wow. Uh, I didn't know. Yeah, I moved that. back from Cleveland State to, you know, I always joke that I could have saved a whole bunch of U-Haul miles. I moved eight hours from Cleveland to New Jersey to pack everything back in the U-Haul and drive all the way to Arizona. Wow. Are, is well, your that right... was the three months of, you know, after, right after Olympics. So 
Is your right hand hitting something? There's a little bit of background noise coming through. I wasn't sure if there was a like hitting like a paper or ruffling or something. I wasn't sure. If, oh, no papers. No, oh, no. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so you get, so the, I got to ask you about this. So in 84, obviously Randy Lewis and Leroy Smith had that epic wrestle off. And then you ended up working for Leroy Smith. Did, did you got, were you guys aware what was happening at, at that uh, 132 pound weight class with Randy and Leroy and that special wrestle off? Yeah, I was on the mat side. Wow. Yeah, I was is... coaching Gibson. Gibson and Gibson had a really tough match with Kozlowski, two out of three, and he was overheating. I had to use ice towel and rub him and cool him down. No, I like the warm-up area and two out of three matches, but I knew that uh, Leroy won, and they said he was an Olympian, but you could hear the scuttlebutt that Iowa people were going to sue. So at the time, I thought that was – BS and Leroy is going to go to Olympics. But then at Big Bear, they had that wrestle up behind closed doors. Were, were you involved with that at all? They had two minutes. Yeah. Well, Randy Lewis was ahead and that was it. Isn't that the craziest situation? It's, uh... it's one of the craziest. Matt Linland's lawsuit was another craziest for Olympics. What happened with that one? I'm not as familiar. Well, he lost the... Uh... Olympic trials, and then they sued and went and re-wrestled like three minutes, things like that. Got it. Yeah, if you Google some of the court cases in wrestling, there's only five of them, but they're all very most crucial events. And I, I just got done watching the Kerry Colat documentary again last week, and what happened to that individual across the 97, 98, 99, and the 2000 Olympics with all like the matches being overturned behind closed doors. That was really messy. So uh, yeah, there's, there's been some, some kind of wild things happen in wrestling. And obviously 84 with Leroy and Randy was one of the big ones. And you know, you being an alternate, I, I just assumed you were there and obviously you were. So once you start training for 88 and you really start zeroing in on Bruce, what was like? What was it about Bruce that made him so dominant? Well, he had a nice double leg and shots, which heavyweights we just pummeled. You know, I was a Greco wrestler since as as I soon as I fifteen and a half when I had my knee surgery. I did not want to hit my knee ever down. I pummeled and push head, arm drag. You know. Um. Yeah, my story is a little bit different. I knew that Bruce was going to be tough. And I was talking to, again, Bobby Douglas and Dan Serberin. I actually lost 100 pounds and went down to 198. So no. I was. Yeah, if you look at the ranking in amateur wrestling news in 1986, I am ranked uh, second or third in heavyweight. Fourth at 220 and sixth at 198 <laughs> in the same sheet. I mean, I have it framed. But, wow. Uh, yeah, you know, at the Olympic camp, I could beat up Bill Shear and Jim Shear, and I trained with Dan Severin. And me and Dan had very close matches, but because of my weight and height, I always came ahead. And I didn't want to take Dan's position. Dan was my best friend. So I went from uh, heavyweight, which was 286, all the way down to 198. 
I How did you seven. cut that much? Yeah, just not eating and working out four times a day. I ate like a rabbit, but uh, four times a day. Yeah, and then uh, at the nineteen ninety eight World Team Trials, uh, I lost seventeen pounds the night before to make the weight. I remember my shoes were soaked with water. I had socks in my hand, and it was hundred degrees outside in Indiana. But I wrestled. Dwayne Goldman, and he firemans me, and I've never been firemans before because I could always sprawl. But I had this muscle and strength, but I didn't have any weight. And the thing I didn't have, which you can't teach, is quickness. Melvin Douglas stuck under me and went behind me, and I was sprawling. <laughs> I was three seconds behind everybody. But I also wrestled Sunkiss Kids at 198 that year. And then decided to just start lifting. And I always eat right and train. Never, never smoke or drink. And, um, you know, at, at that time, I got an idea that, uh, you know, 198 is not going to work out. Heavyweights, Bruce, I might have to go Greco. But I had to get big and strong and learn a little bit of more technique. So 80, that's... I'm just processing that story. That's incredible. So 88 was when you cut down to 197, it was? 1986. 86. And then so for the 88 trials, were you back I at? I was back at heavyweight. Freestyle heavyweight or Greco heavyweight? Freestyle heavyweight. Yeah. And that was kind of the last straw. Then you go, I'm going Greco at this point. Yeah, I did. You know, I lost a lot of muscle by going down to 198 and really not having a personal coach. You know, we had... Bobby and Dan Severin basically give you advice, but, you know, I didn't have a coach coach for myself. Sunkiss Kids Club was a collection of many coaches, Jose and many yeah. other. So, yeah, I, I went to heavyweight and I placed fourth. I think Carlton Hassereg and, and Tom Erickson were ahead of me. Got but it. I, I, but, uh, you know, that Seoul Olympics was the last straw for me. I wasn't going to buy it that Bruce going to retire. <laughs> that it, and that seems like a big turning point in your life. Before that happened though, you said you were working out four times a day. Give us a give us an example of some of those workouts. Like what would your day look like? I mean, wrestling is really easy. Uh, if you want to eat, you have to burn it off. So I couldn't eat unless I worked out. So an orange was a 15 minutes jog. An apple was a 10 minute jog. So you had everything, you know, paced out. But in Arizona, we had a mountain called Squaw Peak. And every wrestler in Arizona State, you know, we, we go as a team, we go individually, we run it up, walk it up. It just depends. So we just train before sunup. And, uh, you know, then weightlifting, wrestling twice, running once, and weightlifting once. So, Jeez, that's a tremendous workload. It's just amazing. Yeah, I think that made a difference in my life because before I keep thinking that I wasn't fast enough or strong enough. I needed more weightlifting, but I just need to discipline of uh, give it all and just, just dedicate. So was Bobby a motivator in that sense? Or was it something that was self-driven for you? Self-driven. Bobby thought I was crazy. <laughs> well, 
Were you yeah, at because the... I'm at a college. I'm an assistant coach. You know, Bobby wanted me wrestle freestyle and hit my knees, and you know, I I'd be wrestling a lot of young heavyweights who be going to college to do collegiate, mm-hmm. and I had to ask them afterward to stay half an hour and go Greco before practice. So it was it was, you know. He, he, you know, he thought that I uh, just stay, stick it out with freestyle and go after Bruce. But I did both styles for two years. I was actually in five nationals. I placed both times. Wow. I used to have 13, 14 matches. And I was dead tired most of the time. But, you know, wrestling and training a lot in 86 taught me the impossible is possible. I mean, and I, to your point, I saw in 91, you were even wrestling Bruce at the U.S. Open um, in freestyle, it looked like, obviously freestyle. Yeah, um, I think until 94 or 95, I did both styles for a long time. I was a national team member. I was Pan Am champion, Grand Prix champion, woke up, all of that for freestyle. So I, uh, I won double gold in many Pan Ams wrestling both styles. I had in the, the, to your point there, the, I think it's called the five point throw or the five point move, the Greco website, they did an interview with you and you had mentioned how, when you went to the Pan Ams, the Cubans would move your match from last to first because they didn't want Fidel to see you, uh, to see the Cubans lose. Cause at that time the Cubans were dominant. Is that a, tr- is that a true story? Yeah. If it wasn't for Randy Couture, they would have, they would have messed with my brain because I was, you know, I won and I beat the Cubans last two years. So they knew that only match they can lose was in heavyweight. And they wanted the Cuban national anthem and Fidel was coming. So, you know, I walk in there and I usually get taped. I usually don't even break a sweat to 149 is wrestled halfway. And they says, you know, I'm on deck. I'm wrestling in half an hour. And I and I got into the anxiety and I was like, what? Heavyweight won't go fast. I'm the last. And I think Randy Couture slapped the crap out of me. Says, you know, we have emergency warm-up. You don't even have to do anything. It's so hot here. You're already sweating. And you don't need your ankles taped. Those are all, you know, my rituals. And just, you know, just go warm up. And, and he, you know, and we won four gold. I won a gold. Randy won a gold. Mark Fuller won a gold. And I think at 49, uh, Andy Saris or someone else won a gold. I can't recall right now, but I know that Sunkis had three golds and we were taking pictures. And Wow. That's yeah. I was going to ask. It's just scary because, you know, when Fidel's coming, the security's coming and, you know, and the Cubans are saying if they lose, you know, the families in jeopardy and they lose their home, they, they use everything as a, you know, they try to mess with your brain. You know, one guy walked up to me, he says, don't beat them more than two. You know, if you beat them more than two, then, you know, he never going to leave Cuba and represent Cuba. It's like, yeah. Did you buy into it or did you, did you go as hard as you could? No, I don't. I don't listen. I don't like talking and wrestling. I don't like anything. I just, I tried to pin them and kill them and get out of there. There'd be a lot of times before and after, just stay focused, you know. 
The best advice I ever heard was earplugs. I remember training a month for Cuba. Our coach used to play Cuban music as loud as they can, and they would bring, we we went to Florida, and they bring this huge fan to bring the humid, open the doors and push the humidity in because the wrestling was outdoor. It wasn't in the gym. So you got the Cuban music and you're sweating and you're sticky, but you just learn to just tune everything out and focus, you know? And so would you actually wear earplugs or that was just advice you would be given in kind of the mentality? No, you can't wear earplugs, no, to wrestle. No. no, you just use it mentally. And the Cuban Greco program is world-renowned. Back then, were they, would you say, as dominant or more dominant than they are now in Greco? More dominant. We only won Pan Ams one time. <laughs> wow. Pan Am championships. Pan Am, you know. Yeah, but Cubans were under Russian system. You know, you just take a look at Hector Milan. He was a world champion in 220, an Olympic champion, world champion. You know, he tried to do it in heavyweight to beat Karelin. And Karelin just picked him up and slammed him down. But, yeah, they were tough. They're still tough. Still tough. I mean, the Olympics, you know, day one, they put two in the finals and uh, in, in the Greco tournament. Uh, it's, and obviously they, they ended up bagging a couple medals. So amazing that a country that small could produce that level of talent when the States, you know, obviously infinitely bigger, can't so much as muster a medal. It's like, what, what do you make of that situation and that paradox? Well, that's just the same as club city versus city and all that. But those guys get homes and cars. So if you want to make it out of the poverty, you have to be a good athlete. I mean. Lopez or the Cuban national wrestling team do not live in Cuba. They get paid to go to Rome to train six weeks. They train in Bulgaria and Russia. They take their talents and make other countries better. We had a Cuban national team in Colorado Springs for many times for months at a time. They don't have food or water or equipment, you know? So it, again, my, my information is when I was wrestling. Sure. I, I'm just saying that uh, they were picked from young kids in the clubs and cities and told that, you know, if they don't dominate, they would never they never get the houses or the cars or the, they're government employees. So if they don't perform, they have to go work in a factory. Oof, and those okay. are the things those guys would tell me that don't beat me more than two. You know, they take my house away. Don't, don't. Don't embarrass me or I can never leave Cuba because they like to leave Cuba so they could bring cigars and rum and sell it, you know, and yeah. bring cash back. That is crazy. They would come up to you and say that beforehand. That's uh, those are the, those are wild, wild times. Were you ever approached to, uh, to throw a match or to give a match away back in that era? No. I mean, people were approached me to say, don't beat them so bad. I mean, I had Corellan to shoot for. That's what Baumgartner trained me. For me, if I beat the guy 10-0, I was upset I didn't pin him. You know, and it, you know, every my coaches told me I was the most, how do I say it, hard on myself. 
So I, if I beat the guy 10 nothing, I say I should have pinned him. When I pinned him, I said he was no good. Why was he in the mat with me? You know, I pinned him so fast. He was no good. He didn't give me any. So, no, I had, I had uh, world rankings to climb. I didn't think about. When I went to a tournament, if I didn't win anything, then it was a waste of time and trip, and it was a socially being a tourist. And uh, Mike Hawk or Coach Anatoly or all my coaches, I would tell them that I'm not going. They're like, why? I'm like, oh, in Poland, they give you a keg of beer and a boombox. Those are so big to bring back. I don't want to win anything there. And then they say, what? I'm like, I win them, you carry them. And those guys end up carrying a couple of big crystals back for me. Because I would say, I'm just going to forfeit. I don't want to, I don't want. I mean, I want a kayak in Haparanda. I was like, what am I going to do with a kayak in 100 miles from Arctic Circle? I'm going to get it back to U.S., you know? Those are the kind of awards you would get? Huh? Those are the kind of awards? Every sponsor, every sponsor, these are not Olympics or Worlds. These are Grand Prix. Now they give you an envelope full of cash. But those days, if the... Hoover Vacuum was a sponsoring of Finland Open. You get a medal, and then you get a Hoover Vacuum, which Probably. doesn't work in the U.S. It's 2020. So my coach's job was going to stands and try to sell it. I want a refrigerator. When I got a pony keg and a big samovar in Poland, and I had to give the pony keg to all the gym workers because I was like, I don't drink beer, and I don't want to. I don't want to haul this back to the hotel in a taxi. You guys can have it. Have a party. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was a popular guy when I went to countries because, you know, like, they give, I want to, this is 80s, you know, having a camcorder, a little one was big. And they gave me one, but it wouldn't work in the U.S. It was European system. So I was like, oh, geez, coach, go sell it. Wow. That's wild. Of all the places you went, what's one of the one of the trips that sticks out as just one of the most uh, most memorable? I mean, you're a world traveler, a world citizen, but there's got to be a few that stick out. I mean, some of the stories you can't tell, but some of them are world. Uh, you know, like. Uh, We are trained in France, INSEPT, the Olympic Sport Institute, for a couple of weeks. Then we go to the World Cup in Germany. I won the World Cup. I think Randy won silver. We did really good as a team. And we have a ticket to come back to America. Now, we've been out of the country for a good month, you know. And... Uh, I get a call in my room that the because the world championships was over and the world cup was over the Russian Federation is creating a tournament in Siberia called Korelanka the budget is 5 million dollars all the medals are real gold and silver and Siberia is where the diamonds and gold comes and is you get a lapel pin from platinum. And it's for only Russians. 
So there's a national tournament. The champions will get a car. They all get this Mitsubishi four-door sedans. The heavyweight, which they figured is Corella, gets a four-by-four SUV, the biggest, <laughs> uh, you know? And I'm sitting there saying, what the hell are you telling me this for, you know? They said, well, no Russian heavyweights give this guy a match. We want you to come. I said, well, he's a Russian. I'm not a Russian national. I, I've been training for a month for the World Cup. I am heading back. So then the negotiation begins. <laughs> what would you take for you to come? And I'm saying, I don't want to come. You know, we have tickets. It's like, well, we give you first class tickets from here to Moscow, Moscow to Siberia, Siberia back to Moscow, Moscow back to Colorado Springs. And I said, I am not coming along. I want to bring my Sunkist teammates and my Olympic residence teammate. They're like, okay. So I'm thinking about the movie Magnificent Seven. So I'm looking at Randy. You know, don't go home. Uh, Matt Leyland, don't go home. Heat Sims, don't go home. Uh, Chris Saba, don't go home. And I think we had one more because we had, I, I can't recall all the names, but I, I, I picked the team and I told them, you know, this is voluntarily. This is not USA wrestling sanctioned anything, you know. And Anatoly was my coach, Anatoly Petrosian. So I said, Anatoly, you come and you have to negotiate in Russian. All of these guys need to get room, board, plus expenses, plus per diem, you know, like hundred bucks so they can eat and spend money. Be a vacation. Yeah. So basically, everybody got to wrestle, but no one had a chance to make it to the finals but me which they didn't want me to make it to the finals, but they wanted me and Corallan put up a show in his hometown in a sold out stadium. And, uh, you know, a lot of things went wrong. A lot of things went right, but we trained at the Olympic training center and Olympic village in Moscow to get acclimated. Then we flew to Siberia where the sun only comes up for two hours. It's always dark and freezing cold. And, and uh, you know, I think I had one of my best matches. I tell people it's so amazing what a four by four Mitsubishi does to motivate you than Olympic medal, you know? I'm thinking <laughs> I could sell that for 60 grand or 50 grand in Russia. So, so how yeah. did the other guys do in that tournament? I know you said they didn't make the finals, but were they competitive or was it just out of their league? It was it was hard. We had different incidents and so some people wanted to kill Matt Lindland. The mafia was after him, you know. He, he turned the guy real easy, you know, but he broke the guy's thumb on the other side. He pulled his thumb, broke it, so the guy got, you know. And then the guy called all his buddies and military, so we had to lock him up in the locker room and have all of us stand there with the police. And they, they get wrestler, didn't have a chance to go in a car, and he wanted to not hurt Matt Lindland. He just wanted to kill him. Yeah, that's one of the good stories we always tell everybody. I say is this Soviet Union or post-1991? 
No, this is post-1991. This is Karalan Cup was, I think, 95, something like that. So it's it's pretty crazy at this point in Russia because they had gone through a transition. Oh, yeah, Matt Leland got his hand raised as the referee raising his hands. He's calling us from stands to come down because the other guy is calling all these guys from mili- Russian military and Russian mafia to come up and kill Lidlin. It's Yeah, it's pretty good. And we have it all on tape, so that's the best part. No. Like, why did he turn so easy? Oh, the guy's stand up, his thumb sideways like this. So did Linlin break his thumb and then turn him, or it broke on the turn? No, no. Linlin's technique was he hurt you on the left side so he could attack you on the right side. Oh, my God. Yeah, Linlin is a man. He won an Olympic medal with one arm. He's, he threw his elbow out at the wrestle with one arm, but he wouldn't give up. So when did you wrestle Karelin in the finals? Yeah. I had to beat three Russians to get there, and every Russian was tough. And they wanted to pay me to lay down because they wanted to get a car or get a chance. For Second place was a Harley Davidson. And my coach sold it for $17,000. And then I threw Karelin off the platform into the stands and scored a couple of points, made them look bad. And then they took all the prizes away. And at the stands, he said that uh, it's his tournament, his hometown. It's his money, and he ain't giving me nothing. So you didn't get the second place money? Oh, no. That's another story. You don't have enough time in your podcast with these stories. We do have enough time. That's what we're here for. (laughs) Hold on a second. You make the finals, and you don't get the money? You have to talk to Chris Sable, Matt Lindland, or Randy Couture. They announced it three hours before. And they showed it. The, the SUV is for the champ. Harley Davidson's for the second. And they had a rug and a camcorder and something else for third. And once I made the finals at 10 a.m., between 10 to 6, I had over 90 people wanted to buy my Harley Davidson because they made an announcement to the stadium. And everybody's like, you're so lucky. Congratulations. At least you got the Harley, you know, Harley $17,000. And then uh, the Jeep or the 4x4 would be $60,000 if you you beat Corella. So my coach is like making deals. He's happy in the stands. And then after it was over, I did fight hard. I, I was one of my best matches. I was within a point. But I was disrespectful because I threw him off the platform right into the stands in front of his family and stuff. So they got mad at me. So when did you find out you weren't getting the Harley? In the stand. Were you pissed? Or you just... out for, they said first place, a Jeep, Corella, and second place, Harley to Corella, a diamond necklace worth 50 grand to Corella. Oh. Gosh, that's so they did everything backwards. So they spent two million dollars on a welcome opening ceremony banquet right after Wayne's. They had models flew in from Italy, they had Sturgis and caviar by kilos and tables, and seven bottles of alcohol from cognac to vodka. And then they had Ersigan, and every Russian Olympic champion was there. Basically, was the Hall of Fame honors banquet before the tournament. Wow. And they keep telling us that we had no chance of winning. So enjoy, eat and drink and blah, blah, blah. 
And I oh. remember saying to the guys, I'm leaving. And this, this is after the tournament we celebrate, not before. But yeah. Yeah, there's like a lot of good stories. I traveled 28 countries, wrestled and was number two in the world for 11 years. And every, every story has seven sub stories. I got, you know, Corellan Cup paid for all of our hotels and everything. And they won't let us check out because Heat Sims had a $1,200 phone bill. He called US from Siberia. And he mm. says, I call collect. And the guy says, Russia doesn't have collect system. What and, happened? Oh, I had to call Corellan's coach and have it waived. So yeah, I, I was negotiator, babysitter, yeah. but I didn't want to go alone. That, that was the whole idea. This trip was fun. For all of us, we we, you know, we we bought a lot of Russian trinkets and, you know. So was it in Kresnyarsk or? Novosibirsk. Oh, Capital literally Siberia. in his hometown. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. That was his hometown in middle of winter with gold and diamond mines as a sponsor given, you know. Yeah. And then my coach says, Karelan and his coach said that, they were sorry about Harley Davidson. It was a mix-up. They're going to bring $17,000 to the airport. I said, he ain't coming. He says, no, he's coming. He's man of his word. And then they send word that he drank a gallon of vodka and passed out. So he ain't coming. But my coach was so heartbroken because I gave him 10%. That was his fee for going in the stand, selling it and all oh. that. He, for three years, if he said, everywhere he saw Corella and he says, you're a man of your word. You know? He would go up to Corellan and actually say something? Well, he said, where is the money? And they, they would just laugh at him. You know, they, they don't care. So what you, So what was Corellan like? Did you ever have any conversations with him through a translator? He speaks perfect English. Really? Wow. He just used translator because he's a politician and Mother Russia have to look good. He's holy smokes that's amazing just in terms of being able to interview him and ask him not that that would they would ever allow that to happen but if they did man yeah he had, so he used to get paid to wrestle for a club in sweden and i would go there and train with him we play floor hockey as a warm-up and then we wrestle and then you know, he was like a professional. He represented the club in the club duels. Yeah. He speaks perfect English, yeah. So how long yeah. would you train with him for like that? Well, this is when he was beating me by eight, nine points in early 89, 90. But as I got closer, we didn't talk much at all. But he likes classical music. He's He has a, I want to say, a room full of CD collection. He collects different music. He had a home in Hungary. He took all his cash and put it in Swiss banks. He was a billionaire. Um, he was getting paid by government, you know, to wrestle. And uh, but uh, I after '92 Olympics that I came close. '91 I was second in the world, and after that he did not want nothing to do with me because I was a threat. So was he as militant with his training as? as the rumors have made him out to be, or was he someone who enjoyed life as well? Oh, he enjoyed life. So he, he like, would drink he? and he would eat and 
that kind of thing. I don't know. We had practice and he wouldn't show up, and they says, "Oh, he drank it. You know, he doesn't use a glass. He drank a bottle of vodka, and he's in a sauna sweating it off." That was a workout. <laughs> yeah, he thought it's weak to use glass. So I used to make fun of him because they wanted the bottles. I said, make sure it's a gallon. Get a gallon of vodka. See, he doesn't drink it all or not. Macafar, you are blowing my mind here. I'm, I'm thinking we have to do a documentary called the Corellan Cup. That seems like one of the craziest tournaments that I've ever heard of. How was oh, he? Just, that's, just a, that's just tip of the iceberg. Stuff happens that, you know, is side stories left and right. How did Matt Lindland get out of that locker room? Oh, we had to we had to do a lot of uh, a lot of talking, and uh, I I I was gonna forfeit. I move out, so they didn't want to have. They wanted to have a match in heavyweight. So. Yeah, he's a uh, you got you got to talk to him about that. That's a good one. I definitely will. How was Corellin perceived in terms of popularity with the freestyle greats at that time? Greco Roman. In every other country but U.S. is head and shoulder above freestyle. Head people and shoulders. Yeah. People who do freestyle, they couldn't make it in Greco. So Corella and, and, you know, it was a different, because it's older. There were 100 more Olympic champions in Greco in, in, than the, in freestyle. Greco-Roman was a lot longer in Olympics. So could Corella so his, be, go to Chablis? Ryan can kill anybody at any level. Oh my God. I didn't know that that was the that was the hierarchy because obviously Yeah, but I beat Gogo Shivili in a couple of tournaments. I mean he was he was long and tall. You know, all you had to do is catch him when he was either drinking or smoking and choke him out. That's what Erickson said. I'm, he said uh, he found him at a World Cup one time and he was like, they saw him at the bar the night before, and he was like had women sitting on him and just drinking, yeah. smoking and living, you know. Oh, yeah. Same thing with Habilov. All the, I mean, I trained with all those Russians freestyles when they came to Toledo World Cup and everything. They wanted me to take him and buy bullets for the guns. They go hunting, bear hunting. They didn't care about the tournaments. They, they had different agendas when they came here. Wow. Did Karel never come to the States? Many times. We had the Concord Cup, yeah. Wow, I didn't realize that. And we wrestled in Pittsburgh once and... Um, they had a grand championships like around winter times that if they will give cash prizes. Yeah. There were a lot of different. Yeah. He will, he comes to the U S maybe once or twice a year. So he was on that card. Cause that's when John Smith wrestled Sergey one of the years. Yeah. I was in there too. Yeah. I okay. scored a point to get my, actually I scored three points on him there. Cause he had to score to win the money. Right. I think he had to score to win the money, but I, I scored three points because I just wanted to beat the crap out of him. But Yeah. Wow. Why do you think in Dagestan then freestyle is as popular as it is compared to Greco? Because of college and high school. Mm. Again, our system is different. I did high school wrestling, college wrestling, freestyle wrestling before I went Greco. Over there, you do Greco at 10 years old. Wow. There is no high school wrestling or college wrestling. You want a scholarship, you do Greco. That's amazing. And so that ex explains so much. So Corell and obviously larger than life, you start edging closer to him. And then in 96, you have an epic showdown with him in Atlanta. Talk us through that match. 
I mean, the big match for me was quarterfinals against Ukraine because Ukraine was second and third. And he used to beat Karelin when they were all Russians before the 92 breakup. Mm-hmm. And once I beat the Ukrainian, the German in a semi was a little bit doable. I could see the, you know, and uh, Karelin, uh I knew I can beat him. And I knew I could beat him in 2000. I predicted Rulon's going to win just because of, they didn't train as much or maybe they weren't as hungry as much, you know, hmm. and he was a scared, you know, scared. Yeah. He was scared losing in Atlanta. It was my country, my hometown. And they keep saying, why is he wrestling so hard? You know, the coaches would tell my coach that he might reverse lift me and put me neck down and paralyze me. And why am I, you know, just not playing nice. I mean, if you go look at some of the matches from Barcelona, the guy from Romania shook Corellan's hand and lay on his back and got pinned within 10 seconds. And I asked him why. He says, well, he had a chance with a bronze. He's not going to get hurt. And he just, you know, gave in to Russian demands. Everybody talked. he took money. And then he came back and won a bronze. He did not spend one ounce of energy. He, you know, he shook hands and laid on his back and waited for Corellan to get on top of him. But there's there you know atlanta was very uh exciting for me um 95 i broke my leg and i was going to retire i didn't go to nationals because i had my leg was in three pieces and i wrestled the world team trials uh, and beat rulon twice and beat many other guys to get to rulon and then i went to world championships and won a bronze because I was in Corellan's side. You know, they don't see, it's a luck of a draw. You get Corellan in your side, you're bronze. You get Corellan on the other side, silver, you know? <laughs> so was well, your that, Worlds in 95 in Atlanta as well? No, no, that was in in, in Prague, I think, in Budapest, so Prague, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic. <clears throat> so when you look at uh, Rulon beating Corellan and you predicted it, is it simply because you felt Karelin wasn't training anymore? Was there a change in the rule? The rule change. The rule mm-hmm. that, you know, the clinch was the rule change. Same reason Rulon beat me, you know. You flip a coin, you lock, you have to score or you lose, you know. Yeah. Kind of a kind of a bizarre concept now to look back on. Um, definitely for freestyle, maybe a little less bizarre for Greco since it's an upper body hold, but you may Freestyle, say- you got to give him your leg. <laughs> That was bizarre. Just holding your leg up in the air. That was bizarre. Yeah. I forgot about that was like a little bit later. Yeah. With the that was same time. Was it? Those were same rules. They did not want a zero zero match. They wanted someone to score. And if you don't score, they make you score. So, yeah. so let me add, there's so much I, w- I could cover, but I, I do want to ask you about this. And I have, I have to stop in six minutes, unfortunately. Once you stopped wrestling and got into pro wrestling in Japan, what was what were the atmospheres like inside those arenas? Because you had to be larger in life over there. I don't know that I got into it. I was in business school trying to get my MBA and I needed money. <laughs> got it, it wasn't like I set my goals to do it. You know, I got someone approach me and says, hey, what are you doing this summer? 
I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm between first year and second year of MBA school and trying to make money doing wrestling camps and stuff. And they're like, well, there's an opportunity. And I said, okay, let's do it. What was that opportunity? Just to go and do some mixed martial arts. Uh, some there, there, you know, I did a couple of fights like UFO and Pride. That was not pro wrestling. Then their pro wrestling was a little bit different. Yeah. They don't tell you who the winner is. They want you to have a good fight, but they already know. But yeah. You have so the guy Ogawa was a Olympic judo silver medalist. So he's the one keep recruiting me and talking to me. He wanted to build the discipline of judo fighters versus wrestlers. Because judo is very popular in Japan, much popular than wrestling. So he wanted to bring some limelight and promote wrestling in Japan by competing with the national sport. So in Iran, wrestling is a national sport. In Japan, judo is a national sport. What about Russia? Would you say wrestling is a national sport in Russia or is it more like soccer? No, wrestling is one of the core sports in Russia. Got it. A lot of people assume that I've just read conflicting things that maybe it, it isn't as big as it is in Iran um, on a on a national scale, but 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 Iran doesn't have all the sports Russia has, like right. handball, basketball, water polo. You know, right? They go they go soccer, weightlifting, wrestling for the boys. Did you ever go back to Iran for any tournaments? I wasn't allowed. I, I tried many times. I wrestled in every country and won. And I wanted to win in Iran and they they blocked me. They they said to US wrestling that uh if I come, I will not leave. Just because I was born there, I owe two years of mandatory military. And because I didn't go to military, they would grab me at the airport and would not let me wrestle. So, yeah. What if there was like a world championship event? Would that still be in effect or you just have to sit it out? Oh, I had to sit it out. There were many tournaments, Grand Prix World Championship, where Melvin Douglas won and I was supposed to go there, but they told me not to come. Wow. Last- I was told not to come next five years. I don't want to go. Yeah. I, you know. But they ran some kind of promotional anti-government campaign on TV that showed all great athletes who meddled, who were born in Iran. And I was featured one of them for representing America against Karelin. And uh, I was born in Iran. So there's bad feelings, I could say. Yeah, I can imagine. I can't couple imagine. of people for other countries who won medals. Well, they want the medals to count for them. So they would you say you're revered that. because of that or you're hated because of that? I kind of said both. Depends who you talk to. Young kids and people who don't like the government, they think I was lucky and great to leave and done good outside. People in the government thinking I should have stayed. I did this. I've been there, done many clinics for them in the the house of wrestling. Uh, I've been there. Yeah, I've been, I've been there. uh, Again, they like me as a coach. They don't like me compete against them. Ah, okay. 
I thought you meant you had never been allowed back, period, but you've been just not no, as a I've been, I've been back in 2015. I went there. Wow. Uh, they wanted me to talk to the heavyweights, Greco. And then, uh, and they were, you know, and then they said, oh, you know, you were so technical. We made a mistake. We need the whole team to hear that. And then they said, oh, you know, that was so good. We didn't videotape it. You need to come back and do another one, longer session. And we videotaped it. But, but the guy who passed away, who ran the Federation, who won the gold in Atlanta, he wrestled a lot of the tournaments in Europe that I did. So I knew them well. Unbelievable. I This conversation could go on for hours, but I, I do want to ask you this as our last question. Yeah, oh. you're all over the board. You're not even following the timeline. You go from 86 to 96, all over. No, just kidding. You just got to follow the curiosity, man. You've dropped some amazing stories that I didn't know even existed. Last question, Lopez Corellan. Where do you think they stack up now that it's all said and done? Uh, it, it won't be a match. In which way? If they competed, there won't be a match. I mean, if you put Corellan on the mat against Lopez, I mean, Corellan will win with a reverse lift. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to go the other way with it. No. I watched Turkey beat him. I mean, I was at Las Vegas. Lopez is up and down. Corellan, uh, I, I can never see Lopez scoring on Corellan with any move. And the way how Cubans always been submissive to the Russians because they're part of communist Russian growing up. Lopez was trying to learn from Corella when he was youngster. Yeah. And that was like, you know, like saying you put an Iowa wrestler against Dan Gable. What do you think? Yeah. yeah. It won't be a match. Macafari, I cannot thank you enough, sir, for your stories and your time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you again. We wish you nothing but the best, and it's been a real pleasure for coming on no the show problem. and chatting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. And that's the end of this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. Thank you to our sponsor, Spartan Combat. And coming Monday, August 30th, we will be releasing our next audio documentary series. It's called Slaying Satyev. It's a story about the biggest upset in wrestling history that took place at the 2000 Olympics. We put a ton of time into these audio docs, so it would mean the world to me if you would check out Slaying Satyev on Monday, August 30th, right here on this platform. Peace!